Hey, good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to my airport hangar. Uh, I hope you're all comfortable. <clears throat> Let's roll the theme music, Sam. I'm Garth Mullins. This is Crackdown. Live at the American Anthropology Association Conference. Hey everybody, I hope you're having a good summer. Although uh, there's an overdose crisis, a housing crisis, a climate change crisis, and the fourth wave of the pandemic is coming at you, so I'm not sure that's a very good way to open the show. Um, we're busy working on a whole bunch of episodes coming up for the fall, including a second look at Suboxone, um, kind of an investigation into uh, benzodiazepine contaminating the drug supply, uh, and other good stuff. You're going to like it. So today, I want to give you a little bit of bonus Crackdown content. In November of 2019, Crackdown held a panel at the American Anthropological Association Conference here in Vancouver. We all sat around these little coffee tables on a stage in front of a big echoey hall. As drug users, we've gotten pretty familiar with what it feels like when anthropology is done to us, when we're its subjects, its guinea pigs. But in this panel, we talk about what it looks like when anthropology is done with us, in partnership. I talked to researchers Helena Hansen, Andrea Lopez, and Danya Fast. But first, I'm going to chat with editorial board members Laura Shaver and Jeff Loudon, as well as Crackdown's lead science advisor, Ryan McNeil. Now, this first bit might be familiar to some of you. This is the story of the methadone switch here in British Columbia in 2014. But there's some new stuff here. Um, we talked to Laura and Jeff about their personal direct experiences with this. And if you want to hear the whole story, you can go back and listen to episode two. So here we go. One of the things we wanted to do is just walk you through uh, how we bring those things together, how we bring the research and the lived experience together in one thing. And I'm going to do that by telling you about methadose. Um, exactly. So in, in, uh, methadone is like a nicotine patch for if you're wired to heroin. It's, it's like you, instead of having the cigarette, or sometimes in addition to, you have a patch that gives you that hit of nicotine. And the idea is to kind of reduce a lot of the harms that are associated with uh, having a drug from the illegal drug market, which is uh, right now killing um, you know, 11, 12 people a day in Canada and, and many more in the United States. Uh, in 2014, uh, BC switched the formulation. They changed everything uh, about the system, but particular to us was the formulation of methadone. So what had been a generic drug that was around for a long time, overnight in February of 2014, got switched for a, a sort of branded commercial big pharma formulation. And then right away, things started to feel different. We cover this in the podcast, and we're going to talk to folks about it in a second, but I'll just play you a little bit of tape from the podcast so you can you hear know, how I, people are reacting. I was on methadone constantly since, so to this year, I've been like 23 years or something. I had no advance warning whatsoever. What did the pharmacist say? 
He just simply said, this is the new deal. This is, it's the same thing. Trust us. Trust us. The first thing that bothered me is the taste and the consistency. It was like exactly like drinking cough, cherry cough syrup. A sickly, thick cough syrup thing. It, there was something amiss. It was the middle of the night. I woke up feeling like uh, my legs would, were moving and couldn't sleep, and I felt like twitches. I'm thinking, what the fuck? Like, excuse my language, but how, what, what, whoa, what's going on? If it's not even holding me the 24 excuse hours that it promises, it's not even holding me 12, not even holding me 10. I am, I am dope sick. Like, I am, I'm dope sick. I, uh, this medication is not the same. There's something different. Like, uh, we just were never feeling good. And that's when we started re-chipping. <laughs> I was trying so hard to keep my life together. And then somebody else decided for, my, for me what medication they were going to give me, and it was insufficient. So you heard the voices there of Laura and my friend Ray. So I'm just going to ask Jeff real quick. Jeff, I remember in 2014 you got switched to. What did that new stuff feel like? <laughs> you got to pick up your mic there, man. <laughs> it was garbage. It didn't do a damn thing. So... That meant that you would take it, you know, 12 or 16 hours later, you're not feeling so good, right? 12, geez, 10 maybe. <laughs> and so methadone really has one job, is to stop you from feeling the withdrawal symptoms that you get from opioids if you're wired. So stop you from feeling dope sick is the word you heard in that clip. And all of a sudden, um, in 2014, you get 15,000 people across BC and loads and loads, maybe more than half, were feeling dope sick in the days that followed that switch. That was five years ago. Um, and do you remember what it felt like, like the first couple of days of that? Go, go from being comfortable with the other stuff, and then this new stuff was just complete garbage. It's, you did it, and then 90% of my friends ended up going back on your own. And so that happened, that happened with you too, right? Like, yep. Yeah. Laura, and Laura, do you remember that day, those days? Well, yes, I went from, you know, using once in 2000 and using heroin once in 2008 and once in 2011 and having, you know, four years clean behind my belt to um, exactly February 6, 2014. I was a full-blown needle junkie again. And I mean, and I mean, in a bad way, because I was not even, not just because of being dope sick, but I was so pissed off that like, that, that this could happen and that it was not my decision. I had no choice. The only reason that, you know, we were able to even organize around it is because of the fact that, because of the British Columbia Association of People on Opiate Maintenance and we organize, we had meetings, or else we wouldn't have known. It, it was so bad that the British Columbia Association of People on Opiate Maintenance were the ones who made the um, warning posters and announcements to put up in all the doctor's offices and pharmacies in BC um, explaining the new change that was coming. That's right, because no one, no, one was, no one was warning people, right? Yeah. So this is, this is coming, and what else happens in 2014? Fentanyl starts to be a big thing in our drug supply. So just when they take away the thing 
that gives us a little protection, along comes a much more contaminated drug supply. Of course, that's when the, um, I, I believe, February 1st, 2014 is when the actual national um, fentanyl overdose crisis began. Now, Ryan, you were doing uh, research around this time, too. Uh, what I, I got to tell you something about Ryan here is when this happened to us, very few people outside of our own community believed what we were saying. And uh, Lisa, who works on the podcast, who's right there, she was one of them. And Ryan was the other person that I remember. And, and you started looking into this, didn't you, from a research perspective? Yeah. <clears throat> so I remember, I think, I can't remember whether I was talking with Laura or Charisse uh, before we found out that it was actually going to happen. And first, it was fucked that no one knew that it was coming. All of a sudden, this big change in people's lives was just on its way. And people were expected to adapt, to deal with it, and move on with their lives. And, you know, A... Mm. That made us really concerned because that should never happen in terms of making effective drug policy and engaging folks who use drugs and setting the conditions that shape their own lives. But also, we thought, we, <clears throat> based on those discussions, that we should look at what happens, figure out how it works for people, how it might not work, so that we can understand its impact in real time and hopefully make sure that it goes as smoothly as possible. And we never would have expected to stumble into what, what actually happened when the change yeah. occurred. And, and here's an interesting part though, right, is we've, we've all experienced, or, or a lot of us in, in, in the world of drug users have experienced research as the subjects of it. You know, we're, we're asked some questions um, and we don't really have anything to do with the methods, but no. Ryan and Laura, you guys had a conversation really early on about how the research was gonna go. And that's something I hadn't seen before, is, is the, that us as, as people on methadone were involved in that yeah. discussion. Do you remember that discussion, Laura? Well, we actually, um, the, um, the BCA POM board actually offered to try the methadose before it was released to the public um, so that we so that we could know what to expect, so that we could um, speak to our peers about you know what it was going to do to us because there's you know BCA POM has a seven person board. We all have um, different opiate replacement backgrounds. We all use different poly substances. You know all different types of things, and um, we offered to try it, but. Um, they said no, because it wasn't covered yet. So this is the government saying we can't try this stuff out ahead of time because it's a money issue. But Ryan, at the same time, was doing research, was, was seeing, well, we could ask questions about this in real time. Ryan and Laura talked to each other and thought, what kind of questions should we be asking? Do you remember that, Ryan? Yeah, I yeah. do. So I've been working really closely with you know, the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users for years looking at the programming and the different things that they've been doing really to protest drug wars. Um, and we would have ongoing conversations about things happening in the community. And Laura and I had a long conversation about what was going to happen mm -hmm. when this change occurred because no one knew what the fuck was going to actually happen. No. And so we actually started to design out a study and a set of questions to actually go at this and try to get at what's happening as it happens so we could build some evidence to, again, 
hopefully change policy, inform policy, or make this have mm -hmm. as small of an impact on, on people as possible. I kind of remember the meeting. You guys were discussing what kind of questions should we ask people in this study. Yeah. You know, we're do doing these studies to try and figure out what people are, are finding in the community, and you guys had a discussion about the set of questions you should ask. You went and asked the questions, Ryan, then you came back and reported to us down at the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users, what you were finding. And uh, to me, this light bulb went off about the power of research and lived experience together. Because I was like, holy shit, this doctor, what's his guy, who I didn't really know you very well then, is coming in here <laughs> and he's saying exactly what's happening to us. And I was like, yeah. you know, and, and, then, and then we started to try and take that study and our own experience to government and to say, you got to help us. You got to change back. And do you remember when we started those meetings, Laura? I sure do. Um, you know, we actually had, um, you know, what two of like the executive whoever's of Malincrod Pharmacies, pharmaceuticals from the states come to a meeting with the British Columbia Association of People on Opiate Maintenance um, Board, um, the College of Physicians and Surgeons, as well as the College of Pharmacists. Um, to, quote, try and convince us that everything was going to be fine. Everything was going to be good. We weren't going to notice a difference. Um, and so once we started saying we were noticing a difference, you remember the phrase they told us again and again? They said, it's all in your head. It's all in your head. You're imagining it. Do you, do you remember hearing that, Jeff? Well, even if it is all in our head, it's called a um, psychosomatic. It doesn't matter. The point is, is that, well, then it's still there. The thing is, is that any medication, it doesn't matter whether it is an opiate replacement medication or whether it is um, a diabetic medication. It's either what, 7 to 13% of those people that are switched over to a medic that medication will not take to it. Their bodies will not take to it. So right off the hop, we've already got a compromised demographic um, you have this medication that is insufficient. This change had a profound and almost immediate impact on people. And more than half of the folks that we were talking to were saying, hey, this isn't holding me. I'm experiencing withdrawal. What used to hold me 24 hours is now holding me maybe 12, maybe 16, and I'm not doing well. I'm back, you know, in some cases doing many of the things that I don't want to be doing anymore. I'm hurting, I'm vulnerable, my life is completely fucked up by this. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> one of the more profound moments when this really hit home was one of those early BCA POM meetings going and talking about the work. And quite literally, BCA POM meetings would commonly have 30 to 40 people at them, highly engaged group. And I think at that meeting, it might have literally been Laura, Garth, and maybe one or two other people. Yeah. Because people had been thrown into utter chaos. Yeah, we went from having um, a, at least 40-person um, three weeks out of the month meetings to six people, sometimes maybe the board. Um, and it's only been maybe a year and a half that they've started going up again. And now actually we're going to full capacity. But that's the thing is, is that we're at 2019 going into 2020. They're still reeling from this. And not only that, there's still 11 people in Canada a day dying of an opiate overdose. You know, four people a day in Vancouver. Come on now. Something is still not right. So the, there's a couple of more of your colleagues, Ryan, do studies. The evidence starts to pile up on our side. 
yeah, half or more people are uh, feeling dope sick on this medication that's supposed to treat that yeah, every and day, and they're topping up with heroin. Piling and up so we, on our we start side. trying to present that yeah. to government, right? Yeah, so, you know, something that started to happen early on is, you know, our study was the first that was published looking at this change and found that it horribly impacted people. And Garth was working on a story for Vice and then contacted me about it, published the, the article, calling out the government for the change, sending the, the article and the study to the, the Ministry of Health, who shot it back. Oh, it doesn't have a very large sample size. We're not really concerned. This is maybe just a small-scale thing that happened to a few people. I believe it was a year later, a larger study based on a province-wide survey was published that basically found the exact same thing. Garth, I remember you shot it to the, the health ministry, and the response was the same. And every time that this would happen, with some of the later studies that were published as well, they would trot out this old RCT uh, done out of New York. And one of the interesting things about this is it's a particularly poorly designed RCT that's not necessarily transferable to this context and for people who may be on a lot of different things. But it was also rather hilarious because when I say it's a poorly designed RCT, one of the separate issues is it was 18 people. And they couldn't be on anything other than methadone which certainly isn't the lived reality of people who use drugs in Vancouver, not the least of which anywhere else. Mm. So here we had this study being propped up, being used to prop up this province-wide change that was made, and it was poor science to begin with. Mm. And the evidence started to accumulate, and we started to reach out, and we started to go to meetings. We were at those meetings, and they kept giving us this study, the one with the 18 people that Ryan's talking about by Gurevich. Yeah. They kept telling us, pharmaceutical representatives in suits and ties would push this study at us. Various rumply provincial bureaucrats in the Ministry of Health would push this study at us. We kept seeing it all the time and being told, it's in your head. Meanwhile, we had better studies, and lots of us came, and we told our experience, and that didn't uh, move the needle, so to speak. And interestingly, we started to build this podcast together, and our producer, Sam, who's at the back there, he, he's, uh, wave your hand, Sam, uh, he called up Gurevich, the guy who did this study, who, you know, this is 20 years after he's done the study, calls up this guy to this 18-person study, and he says, um, how do you feel about how they're using your study? And, and the Gurevich guy was like, well, I didn't really intend it to be used in this way. And then Sam points to me at the very bottom of the study. He says, look at that. Read the fine print. It says, funded by Mallinckrodt Pharmaceutical, which is the same company that makes Methodos. So we were into this sort of spin cycle with the government of meetings, and we started to take Ryan to all those meetings, and it would be Laura and myself and Ryan, and one other person I want to tell you about, Sharice Kiwatin. Sharice was the president of our little group, the methadone group that Laura was talking about. She was a good friend of mine. She was the best friend of Laura, and she's gone. In February of this year, she died. And what do you think led to that, Laura? not what I think, it's what I know. It wasn't until four days, and I mean exactly four days before Cherise passed away, that she finally got deliveries, and she finally got on an opiate replacement therapy, which was morphine. Um, 
So, I mean, the thing about Charisse is she got changed to Methodos with all of us in 2014. Yeah. She got dope sick like everybody did in 2014. Mm-hmm. And she never was able to put everything back together. Ever. Laura and Charisse mm-hmm. met each other at the pharmacy going to get their methadone in the morning years and years before that. Charisse had all these years without using heroin. And then she was sick. And, yeah. and like, I, I do the same thing. If I'm dope sick, I'm going to definitely try to use dope to fix that. If Charisse you... did and everybody did. And we had a contaminated drug supply, and you add that daily struggle to be well, daily scoring off of a contaminated drug supply, mm-hmm. you multiply that by five years, and that's what took our friend Charisse. Yeah. And it's not a force of nature that took Charisse. It's not an accident. It is a force of policy. Yeah. If you ever were to look up the British Columbia Association of People on Opiate Maintenance, and you look back to 2014 and Charisse Kewatton, and you watch from 2014 to when she died, 2019, you will see the decline. It is, and I mean, it is not just a, a subtle decline. I am talking extreme. I took a picture of her for Vice out front of a place near in the downtown east side. Yeah. And there was a, there was a young woman, 32-year-old Cree woman, beautiful. Gorgeous, little, little gorgeous. short fire plug of an awesome person. Mm-hmm. There she is standing in front of this billboard. Five years later, um, we lay her out in Glenhaven Funeral Home on Hastings, where we have gone so many times. And I look down at her, we, we walk up to the casket, and I look down at her, and she looks like she could be my grandmother. And she's a decade younger than me, mm-hmm. and there she is. And, and what did that? Is the, that is the that is the policy choices of the government recorded on someone's face and body. It was the Latica medication. She actually went into a, um, a hospital stay that um, they stigmatized her and treated her so bad that she left early, which in actual fact um, was one of the the you know, leading causes in her death. But when somebody has to sit in their own shit for two and a half hours because they cannot get up to get it changed or because a nurse doesn't like that, you have to self-medicate with a different opiate because you don't want to give her one because she's drug-seeking to dying, what, less than three months later of complications from not having a full procedure done. So the, this, um, this last meeting I remember, a big meeting between Sharice and Laura and myself and Ryan and the Minister of Mental Health and Addictions, Judy Darcy, was in 2018, March of 2018. And we asked them for help, like we had been asking the government before and officials every month. She said she would do something. And nothing happened. <clears throat> but, in the inter- but since that time, we built a podcast and we did episode two of our podcast was about this issue. The editorial board, which is eight of us, uh, it's, it's seven of us now, um, <clears throat> we decided that this methadone story was one of the first things we did. We did it, and we did freedom of information requests to the government. We went after all of the people in charge, and we shook the tree pretty hard, and we're starting to see some small changes. We partnered with the Globe and Mail to do some reporting, and so since that 2018 meeting and since we formed a podcast, we're starting to see some options offered 
that are um, more effective. So yeah. a big pharma company does not have an exclusive right to our lives anymore. We've started to chip away at the edges. We haven't won yet. For We're sure. Keep doing it. And I just, um, I know my uh, my buddy has been a little quiet here, Jeff. Uh, and and maybe I, we don't have to we don't have to talk about this if you don't want to. But a few hours before this panel, um, can you can you tell me about what happened, or do you want to talk about that? You got to... I went to meet a few friends, and uh, they were cold. They uh, got some new dope in last night, and uh, it was too strong. So, so you you went over to your friend's place? Yeah. And you found the three of them... This is about... This is this morning, right? You found the three of them were gone, were dead, yeah. right? And you you were using the same the same dope that they were... Mm-hmm. And when I went to get you about an hour ago, I was having a little trouble raising you too. Mm. Yeah, I was on my floor. <laughs> yeah. So, um, like, I, I didn't intend to talk about this, and I didn't mean to put, I, I mean, I did check with you before if it was okay to talk about this. And Jeff was like, I'll talk about anything. Fuck you. <laughs> you know. <clears throat> uh, so, but this morning, um, we were losing people this morning. And, and I said to Jeff, do you, do you still want to do this? He's like, yeah. And after Cherise died, we were going to put the podcast on hold because we were, I mean, she died. And then a couple days later, the podcast episode came out. And I said to Laura, it was snowing out. I said, um, sh- should we do it? Should we press pause? Should we just put down the podcast for a while? And Laura said, no, hell no. The crisis doesn't stop. We don't stop. And so I just, like, mad respect to my friends here who just fucking pushed through this day after fucking day, and show up. So thank you. Thank you for being up here. Thank you for talking to me. And thanks for being an ally, Ryan. Thank you for, for caring. The other thing is I have to say one thing to Garth and to Sam and to everybody is that, um, you know, we have actually won two pretty prestigious um, podcast awards. One um, with the New York Radio um, radio awards, as well as the West... Third Coast. Third Coast, sorry. Um, radio awards, which is like, you know, the Grammys of awards, and that's for talking about our lives, um, you know, going through being current or former drug users, and um, I know for Jeff, Jeff, Jeff is doing amazing work just being Jeff, this man should have been dead many, many times over, and he's not. And that's because there's a reason why he's not. And that's because, because of the people that he saves, because of the people that just, when Jeff walks by them in the morning and nods his head at them, sometimes that's the reason why, you know, two holes is in the arm is better than one in the ground is because somebody cares about you. And, you know, instead of walking over you, you kneel down and help them. I am a current and former, you know, drug user of many kinds, but, but I'm not embarrassed and I'm not, imp- I'm not afraid and I don't think that I am any lesser than anybody in here. I just do things in a different way. Um, and I think that anybody else should be the same way. I'm human, I bleed the same color. So when it comes to a 
being this person or that person, it doesn't matter who you are or what you do. It's what you do. It's how you feel about somebody, how you, you know, I, there are many things in my life that I, you know, that I don't like that I've done, but I wouldn't change a thing because I wouldn't be who I am and I wouldn't have met many of the people I have or saved many of the people I have. So I don't know if it sounds like, I don't know, like I'm being paid to sit up here and talk to you some bullshit, but I'm just telling you like, I don't know. I wake up every day and I am proud to wake up every day. Laura, I'm, I'm glad you wake up every day too. One of the most terrifying days of my year was sitting with you through an overdose that you had on benzos and fentanyl. And I have also overdosed on the same combination. So the three of us are all fucking lucky to be alive. And um, so thank you for, for being with us. That was Laura Shaver and Jeff Loudon from Crackdown's editorial board and Ryan McNeil, our lead science advisor. Since we recorded that, a bit of an update. Laura Shaver, on behalf of all the methadone patients of British Columbia, filed a class action that named Mallinckrodt Pharmaceutical, the College of Physicians and Surgeons of British Columbia, and the government of British Columbia itself. Um, She alleged on behalf of all of us that the switch to methadose is a contributing factor in the overdose crisis. You know, one of the drivers as people got dope sick uh, and started topping up from, you know, the illicit drug supply, uh, there were overdoses. So um, that case is technically still before the courts, but Mallinckrodt said that uh, so many people are trying to sue them right now that they couldn't afford to defend themselves and managed to get themselves severed from the case. Uh, so it's in kind of a, a weird, a weird legal state, and we'll have more updates when when there's something to say. We're all still hoping that methadone patients in British Columbia get their day in court. In the second part of our American Anthropological Association panel, Dania Fast tells us about the situation of youth who use drugs. Helena Hansen explains how systemic racism impacted the role of Suboxone in the U.S. Suboxone is a medication used in the treatment of what doctors call opioid use disorder. It's, I guess, kind of in the same family as methadone in a way. And Andrea Lopez discusses how harm reduction can act as a colonial force and a vector of racism. Let's go left to right and just introduce ourselves. Is that okay? Do you want to? Yeah, for sure. Uh, hi everyone, my name's Dania Fast. I'm uh, an assistant professor along with uh, Ryan McNeil, who you just heard from in the Department of Medicine at the University of British Columbia. And um, for the past uh, 12 years now, I've been working with uh, young people who use drugs uh, throughout Greater Vancouver. I'm Helena Hansen. I am at NYU in the Departments of Anthropology and Psychiatry. I'm a psychiatrist, an addiction psychiatrist, and an anthropologist. I'm also a survivor of a family that has been completely ravaged by drug-related deaths. So it's really an honor to be here and to hear the speakers that you've just had on the podcast. 
My name is Andrea Lopez. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Maryland Department of Anthropology. I've worked in harm reduction for the last 20 years, started out as a uh, frontline service provider before I got my PhD. Um, I'm also from El Paso, Texas, so grew up on the US-Mexico border, and you kind of can't not be a drug war activist um, if you grow up in that area, especially kind of living through the 80s and 90s and enhanced enforcement and criminalization of the area into the present. So that's how I ended up here. Thank you all for, for joining us. Um, and I'm going to just, uh, we'll, I'll talk a little bit to each of you and then we'll kind of have a little bit of a discussion. Then there'll be time for, for Q&A. So Hannah, I was reading your research and um, uh, I was interested because we, we experienced, there's a real um, the racism and the overdose crisis really pack a punch here. And um, you were doing the research in the, in the Suboxone Clinic, and you were you sort of coming on to some explanations for why the overdose crisis gets coded white and people of color can get erased off of the narrative. So uh, I, here I speak for the US, right? I think that things are slightly different in Canada, although I'm so happy to be here and to begin to learn about the history in Canada. In the US, Drugs and race have been so completely intertwined for over a century that uh, you can't really speak about drugs without speaking about race. As a medical student, I happened to be working under professors that were running the early clinical trials of buprenorphine, commercially known as Suboxone, and I heard them talking about how this one medication was gonna change the culture of med medicine. It was gonna get addiction accepted by doctors as a chronic disease, just like asthma, diabetes, and hypertension. In New York City, where I did my training, which was in this huge New York City public hospital that was over 80% um, patients who are either uninsured or on public insurance, um, largely black and brown people, that the Suboxone Clinic was made up primarily of white patients, and many of them had college educations. They were employed or recently employed. They might be qualified for, for public insurance because they'd lost their jobs, but it was just a very different clientele. And that made me curious about the backstory. Uh, how is buprenorphine being disseminated, marketed? What went into all of this? And by asking those questions, I managed to kind of unravel some threads um, about how the opioid uh, crisis or epidemic became white in the sense that race had been there all along. Yeah, we saw this as something like this a little bit here too. You know, yeah. Suboxone came, it came with a lot of great promise, but it came with way less rules. You know, so it was, it was more accessible like that, but methadone still is still out there. Uh, like we were talking about methadone a lot in the first panel and we were all, um, Jeff and me and Laura, we're all, you know, I took my methadone this morning. Um, but there's, there's more rules on that. So does that change who, who gets Suboxone and who gets Methadone? Is there, are people's bodies ruled differently? Are rules applied and sur surveilled more depending on what background they're from? Absolutely. So the way that the manufacturers in um, the U.S. accomplished legalization of private office buprenorphine was to essentially promise that this medication was going to be targeted to a middle class uh, implicitly white clientele. Uh, they worked out a deal with the federal government to um, restrict prescription of buprenorphine to doctors who had eight hours of additional training and certification and a DA license. That essentially shut out public sector physicians for a very long time who don't have the time and incentives to do that. Um, and it followed essentially a racial logic of 
capitalism uh, in the pharmaceutical industry, when a newly patented pharmaceutical comes out, it's marketed to the white middle class. And it's only much later than others, that others get access to it, usually. What's so surprising to everyone is that the quote-unquote new face of addiction that the media is covering is a white one, and often a suburban white face. What that has really, what that's meant in the way of drug policy is that we've shifted from a completely punitive approach, a law enforcement approach, to um, openings for a couple of other discourses. I wouldn't say that the law enforcement approach has disappeared, but these two other discourses have opened up because white people are seen as being disproportionately affected. One is addiction as a chronic relapsing brain disease, the idea that Addiction is a universal problem that really can be traced to molecules and neuroreceptors, and that the answer lies in finding the right pharmaceutical, the right biotechnology that can be a universal solution, and by the way, a patentable, uh, pretty profitable solution as well. The third one is the deaths of despair discourse that some people in the audience may have heard of. In 2015, two Princeton economists, Anne Case and Angus Deaton, they tied overdose to uh, unemployment in the U.S. Rust Belt among white blue-collar workers in areas where manufacturing has disappeared, has moved overseas, um, and to the kind of disintegration of the social fabric that often comes with that level of unemployment. And so for the first time in the U.S., the idea that addiction might be caused, might be um, related to social conditions became much more widely accepted. It's a position that anthropologists had been taking for many decades, and um, community activists, people who had been working in black and brown inner cities and saw the very same deindustrialization, unemployment, um, and misery that went along with that in black and brown inner cities that had experienced a 1970s heroin overdose crisis, that had experienced the crack epidemic uh, of the 80s to 90s, and the HIV, injection-related HIV deaths that went along with that. But those were not, in the media, reported as public health crises. They were reported as crises of crime, as cultural degeneracy. It's, just, it's interesting. The Suboxone and methadone really do the same thing. We were talking about in the first part. They just, they, they act like a nicotine patch. But uh, in, in Canada, the drug war's roots are, are in racism, just as in the U.S., um, it's, it's maintenance is, is in racism too, and it, it started here in you know 1907, 1908, in sort of this uh, backlash against uh, against immigration and workers. And um, but I, th I think about it's not the only thing, the only game in town is is not a suboxone and methadone. Um, sometimes it's just straight up detox. Sometimes it's just cold turkey and nothing. And and I was reading some of your work, Danya, and uh, the the youth um, are hit particularly hard by these kind of things. And uh, I, one, one line caught me, or just what numbers, of, of, some, of the, some of the youth you've worked with or, or done research on. And um, it was like the first, it was the age range, it was 13 to 19. And it just made me think, you know, I, I've been around a long time. I've been around so long, this is my second overdose crisis I've survived. I was here for one during the 90s. How is a 13-year-old facing this right now? Like, what, what did you learn about that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's a lot of diversity in how young people, you know, 
from the ages of 13 to 19 are, are living through this crisis. I think, um, just to tie in with what we're talking about, about the racialization of the crisis, um, in terms of uh, the Indigenous young people who are a part of my research, I think there is uh, a layer to that experience that um, you know, stretches back beyond the duration of their, their relatively short lives. Um, they're living with the ongoing uh, legacy and effects of colonialism in Canada that really stretches across generations of their families. So they are experiencing this crisis um, you know, as something that's new on the one hand, as something that's very different um, than what they've experienced before. But on the other hand, I think, you know, for many youth, they're able to sort of, these experiences sort of stretch back into things that have happened to their family, things that they know have happened within their family. They know that people within their family and across generations of their family have faced many, many, many moments of crisis. So for some young people, that's the experience. Um, for others, it's, uh, it's a matter, I would say, of reckoning with losing a tremendous number of not only friends, um, but also older people in the communities that they're a part of. So losing, you know, street mothers and fathers. And um, uh, so they end up in detox unless they're very skillful at avoiding it because um, the impetus really is to get young people into detox, into treatment, to get them on Suboxone and that's what's gonna save their lives. Um, and there some of them do, uh, do find some sense of hope and a sense of sort of, of a sense of living on the edge of change um, in terms of, and Suboxone can even be a part of that. So um, for some of them, there's a lot of hopefulness in, bound up in Suboxone, the idea that they could get on that, that they could put on that nicotine patch, as you've said, and um, could leave that treatment setting and um, start to build their lives in particular ways. And for other young people, and again, I think this, this is racialized, um, you know, other young people are not as willing or able to invest in that kind of imaginary that, yeah, I'm going to take Suboxone, it's going to change my life, I'm going to get out of here and go back to school or get a job. And, and I think there is a really, um, there's, those, those experiences can be highly racialized, as Helena was saying. Yeah, I mean, um, my buddy Jeff, who was sitting here a minute ago, he, uh, he did, when he, when he was coming in, he said he was going to be probably a little uh, quieter today. And so I wasn't. I wasn't pushing him too hard, but he, you know, he started using when he was uh, around nine, you know, and uh, he's uh, he's faced uh, sort of policy blocks at every step of the road from the 60s scoop to the kind of fragmentation of services that youth are still facing today uh, and, and having a trouble um, of finding a way in. But I think he, he, like some of us, noticed the reform of, of people who actually work in, in harm reduction to be, to be really helpful. And Andrea, that's, what, that's part of your practice, right, is to actually be on the front lines a little bit. Yeah, um, I think, you know, I, I, some people in the audience probably know this, but I, um, you know, got the hell out of El Paso right at the age of 18 and then ended up in a job where they were like, okay, cool, you do all of our harm reduction programming for this outpatient drug treatment program. Um, and that was at a time when they just didn't have anyone to do it. And they were like, you look like you might be able to hang with this stuff. Um, so we sort of got thrown in and then later sort of picked up from there and figured out what that all meant. 
Um, but I think just sort of in the context of what we're talking about, you know, um, I think I learn the most as a researcher from being a harm reductionist and from having that kind of direct service engagement. Um, and just thinking about the different dynamics between the US and Canada. Um, so the idea that here we have a, a harm reduction infrastructure that's very institutionalized, and we don't have that quite yet in the US. Um, in many places, we don't have a needle exchange in certain places that desperately needs one. Um, but to sort of go on what everyone is saying about the kind of racialized exclusion associated with those patterns, um, alongside this like long history of pain, intergenerational pain related to those exclusions are also a very um, developed critical discourse um, about if harm reduction shows up, we already know we can't trust it, um, so fuck your overdose prevention campaign in our rural area, um, or you know, prove to us that we should actually come and engage with the things that you're presenting to us now, um, because there's this idea that these messages or anything that's ever come from a public health department hasn't been for us. Um, and so then where do, we, where do we sort of take that and live with that, knowing that, you know, as harm reduction says, having options for people to choose from are the right thing to do, but you also can't ignore intergenerational histories and experiences of being punished by these kind of public health apparatuses. So, um, you know, for me, one of the things is sort of navigating that as a harm reductionist, someone who's sort of, you know, drank the harm reduction Kool-Aid in many ways, um, but also comes from communities and religious backgrounds that are like a needle exchange in my community is absolutely against everything I stand for. Um, so really engaging with that and honoring some of those opinions and recognizing that harm reduction can be a colonial force in many ways, um, and you have to navigate the complexities of those conversations as well. Um, so really thinking through, okay, so if we just found um, that some black and brown communities are hesitant to engage with like emerging harm reduction infrastructure um, as it comes to places that we've done work, then what does that mean for us in terms of harm reduction advocates or or, you know, anthropologists um, in terms of being attentive to that, right? So there's a tension and a line to walk um, in terms of acknowledging those histories, acknowledging like what is public health evidence, um, and then really creating a space for people who use drugs to be the evidence within that whole structure. Um, so I think, you know, thinking about this, you know, the, the kind of like critical juncture of this moment, at least in the U.S. where this stuff is getting institutionalized, is saying, you know, we as anthropologists have a moment to really fight against the white, male, patriarchal, racist, heteronormative, et cetera, space of academia and think through the types of evidence that get really leveraged in terms of how we conceptualize a crisis, um, any crisis, right? Because one thing anthropologists are good at is sort of historicizing. So we know there's like similarities in this crisis and other crises that we've seen, and we know we can sort of see patterns and predict patterns of exclusion that are gonna happen simultaneously. Um, so I think, you know, at least for me as a US based person right now, you know, we see these tensions and realize that we have to really directly engage with them um, in how we continue our own work as harm reduction ad activists, activists, um, advocates, um, and researchers. Yeah, I, I mean, I think we've all just talked about different kinds of uh, how the institutionalization of services and, and health health as a, as a system operates and, and how people perceive it and, and how it treats people. Um, Last Christmas, um, Jeff was in the hospital, and um, I lost contact with him. You know, there's four or five days go by. I, I talk to him all the time. Uh, he's not answering the phone. He's I don't know where he is. Um, so he, he he calls me and he goes, um, "Hey, I'm in the hospital." 
And I said, oh, shit, I wondered where you were. What's going on? He said, oh, I've been here for four or five days. I said, why didn't you call me? And I said, oh, they wouldn't give me my phone call. And I said, no, 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 it's the hospital, man. It's not the jail. Like, you, you, you can just use the phone. He's like, no, no, you get one phone call. That's how it was. And we had this whole kind of debate back and forth, but I suddenly was just like, oh, fuck, he's... Like, his experience of the hospital, and I, when I visited him there, I could see right away, was really shitty. And so he, he just, this was the state. You know, whether it's the hospital or the social worker or the pro-loss or whoever it is, it's the state. And so you, even Insight, which is the overdose prevention site, you know, the first safe injection site in North America in Vancouver, he doesn't go there because the police park outside, because there's a, a state presence, there's health surveillance, although it can be anonymized that goes on, and there isn't trust. Even, and, and that's not uncommon among drugs users. And, and so when it comes to things like um, research, I, I think that's very challenging too. Um, at, the, at the Drug User Union, the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users where we all work, there is a, an attempt to kind of get a, come to grips with research because it, people in the city who use drugs, especially in the downtown east side, are really a very heavily researched population. So there's an effort to be a part of choosing the goals of the research, talking to people like Ryan McNeil, who was up here earlier, uh, hearing the reports back. There's a bit of a protocol there. But I kind of wondered um, from the other side of the table, and maybe we can just we can go around, or I'll go the other way, start with you, Andrea, um, how, you, how you feel about your personal ethics in approaching research versus what the kind of institutions look for. Yeah. Um. So I'm a non-tenured Mexican-American in academia, which is a whole thing. Um, and so I think, you know, academia, just like many institutions, are fundamentally designed to reproduce themselves, to reproduce the power structures that sort of give the force behind them. Um, and that is true sort of every day um, in how we practice and perform as academics. Um, and so I think, you know, your ethics and many things are constantly challenged as academia sort of forces you to pursue your own sort of selfish endeavors. I'm not going to get tenure unless I get a bunch of publications and other things that are like, you know, sort of going to establish me as a singular researcher. You know, the only way I'm really going to access power is I sort of access those traditional forms of power. Um, I struggle myself with a lot of invisibility, right? People sometimes forget to put my name in an author list and other things. Um, people oftentimes are like, who are you? You know, and I'm like, I'm the, actually, I'm the person presenting the findings today, you know? Um, and so, you know, I feel like being within academia and experiencing those processes is actually a really good way to also be reflective about how you end up reproducing those dynamics in other spaces as well. Um, and so I think, you know, being really cognizant of the fact that you, you lead with a discomfort, you lead with the idea that this sort of project, and particularly a project in anthropology, is inherently problematic. There's no way to shake the history of anthropology. There's no way to shake the history of the harms in anthropology. Um, the only way to do it is to sort of directly confront and then really consider what does that mean? Can the, trans can the discipline be transformed? You know, I've now been an anthropologist for uh, 20-ish years, um, and I'm still not sure that it's right to do, you know? And every day I'm like, all right, well, this is another fucked up moment to navigate in terms of being an anthropologist. And I think that's like the fundamental tension to lead with and directly address. Someone always benefits and someone always benefits less. 
Um, and so that's sort of a reality that at least in my own research practice I take really seriously of addressing concretely um, because people already know and think that. So it's not like you're, you're not introducing anyone to any sophisticated concepts by telling them that research in their communities is highly problematic. You go in and people have that critique and then they wonder what are you going to do from that moment um, and what are the ways in which you're directly going to build coalitions in order to make that research be relevant in their own communities. Well. I am wincing as I hear you talk, Andrea, and I can completely relate to what you're describing until last year. I was an untenured woman of color in academia, and fortunately I got tenure, and I have to say that it's kind of changed my outlook on life. But um, how have I, I think the question is really navigating the power relations and the pitfalls and the the different alliances and allegiances we have. The way that I've come around to it is um, to use my, my awkward position in between medicine and anthropology to play the field on either side and to, rather than continuing to overstudy uh, the people in the line of fire of the drug war, although I do some of that and I try to do it in a collaborative way, um, I've decided to study up. So I've used my position as a clinician to get access to many of the decision makers around clinical practices, addiction science, um, pharmaceutical marketing. And I devoted my past few years to, or more than a few years, to, um, to using the techniques of ethnography to study powerful people. And with the thought that my role was going to smuggle this information back to organizers and people who are politically active at the grassroots level. But I, I think it's an incredibly big problem. It's not going to change until the makeup of people doing research is different, until we have much more color among researchers, particularly those with tenure and those with power, uh, until we have people who are drug users, who are researchers. Um, so that's, that's my thinking. So I just want to encourage you to stay on your path, and I want to be in touch with you, we'll Andrea, see. after this. Um, I mean, I, I also want to echo what's been said about, you know, you come to these, to these encounters as an anthropologist knowing that there are tremendous power imbalances involved, and... Um, you know, it is so important to come into that knowing that those are not going to be resolved, that it is a very fucked up situation in a lot of ways. And, um, you know, I think talking that through with youth has actually been really helpful, talking to them directly about that, about the fact that, um, you know, research carries with it a lot of very problematic dynamics. Um, what I wanted to introduce to the conversation is this idea of time. I think Andrea touched on it a little bit. We're under tremendous pressure, um, especially if you're a, a junior scholar, to pump out the publications, pump out the grants, get the work done. And part of that um, you know, churning of time is, here's the institutional consent form. Um, you know, you want to participate in research? Sign this form. Okay, you've signed it, now we can do research together for five years and that encounter is over. Obviously, that there are tremendous ethical problems with this sort of sign one consent form and then let's sort of continue on um, with, this, with this kind of research that we're doing. So I think one, you know, 
thing that's been so important to me in my own work with young people in Vancouver is time, being able to spend long periods of time getting to know young people, talking to them about research, talking to them about, you know, my own research program and research programs more generally, I think we benefit a lot from being in an environment where Vandu is active and where there are examples of, you know, groups who have made demands on researchers. So that's a part of the culture here in Vancouver. But the young people who I work with, they aren't necessarily hooked into the organizing that's going on at Vandu. So it is a matter of taking that time talking to them and really, you know, this all sounds nice. Oh, let's just take our time and get to know people. The fact is funders, institutional ethics bo um, boards are actually pushing us to do the very opposite. They're pushing us to just get that signature, you know, dot the I's, cross the T's, get it done. Um, so I think one, one way that I, you know, in no way resolve the ethical quandaries of research, but one way that I just try to work within that incredibly problematic space is working with young people over long periods of time, um, which actually kind of allows them to get to know me, to get to know the research space, and allows them to kind of call us on our shit. So it allows them to say, you know, um, this research question is actually total bullshit, and here's what I think you should be talking about. And I think without that time, um, that those kind of conversations wouldn't come up as much. Uh, you know what, I, th I, th I think I'm reflecting on this and something you said, Helena, um, was that we need more drug users to be actually doing the research. And um, I, I kind of take the conversation a little bit back where we started, uh, right around three. Um, you know, I was saying that some, some of the things that the Slavotith national government does in their approach to um, environmental science was kind of inspiring us to how we did the podcast a little bit. But also, in this province, there is a history of people um, having anthropology done to them and on top of them, but also on doing anthropology. And um, William Benyon is a, was a, a Simpson hereditary chief who did anthropology um, with uh, some of the famous old classic guys. And... Uh, that's kind of something that I think we, we probably want to learn more about, or at least in, in the drug user movement, is, is trying to understand the processes but do some of that ourselves so that we, we don't have to breach that, um, that uh, ethical gap, or at least we can have different problems with it. Uh, all right. Well, thanks, everybody. Thank you to the panel. Thank you. You guys. Thank you, Garth. Really great discussion. Thank you, Thank you Garth. Uh, and Ryan. Thank you, Daniel. Thanks. And uh, thanks to my previous panel, thanks to uh, Jeff and Laura, and to Ryan, and also to Lisa and Sam and Polly who helped uh, bring it all together, and to the AAA. So thanks, everybody. Thanks, Garth. Crackdown is produced on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. We make this podcast with funds from the Canadian Institutes of Health Research and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, and from our Patreon supporters. Our editorial board is Simona Marsh, Shelda Castor, Greg Fess, Jeff Loudon, Dean Wilson, Laura Shaver, and rest in peace, Dave Murray and Sharice Kiwaton. 
This panel was conceptualized, produced, recorded, and edited by Ryan McNeil, Sam Fenn, Lisa Hale, Polly Legere, Alexander Kim, and me, Garth Mullins. Our lead science advisor is Ryan McNeil, assistant professor and director of harm reduction research at the Yale School of Medicine. And as always, thanks for listening. Be safe. Keep six. See you soon.